0: Let's pray as we begin. Dear Father, again, we thank you for this time when we can come and think about other things and quietly um, ask you to come into our hearts and minds. So as we think about Ezekiel and this uh, incredible story, please enlighten us, bring us closer to you. Amen. Well, this will be a little bit shorter than normal today uh, just because um, I have a plane that boards at 210 in Palm Springs, so I need to get out of here in time, Um, there's a conference that I'm talking about for primary care physicians and the title of the conference, if you can believe it, is Don't Kill Your Patient. And uh, so don'tkillyourpatient.com, you go find out about all these lectures and everything. But um, anyway, that's kind of the goal, I guess, of medical school, or one goal, isn't it? That you come out not uh, able to kill your patients. Ezekiel's an incredible book. And we kind of mentioned a few things about the lives of these prophets and what they went through. And uh, Ezekiel went through some incredible things. In Ezekiel 4, we read that he was asked to lie down on his left side, and I will place on you the guilt of the nations of Israel. For 390 days you will stay there and suffer because of their guilt. I have sentenced you to one day for each year their punishment will last. When you finish that, turn over on your right side and suffer for the guilt of Judah for 40 days, one day for each of their punishment. So anyway, you wanna be a prophet for God. You never know what uh, might come up. And you know, it's really sad. Ezekiel's wife died midway through and God told Ezekiel, don't mourn for her and that this will be a sign to the people. And everyone asked, why aren't you mourning for your wife? Um, So these people had hard, hard lives, but there's a very interesting story. Now, a lot of things that uh, I won't reinforce because we've been over it and over it so many times but I'll just point out one verse. We've talked so many times about what God's wrath is. Oh you my know, boy, there are good 10 beautiful verses on this. I won't go through them again. I'll just mention one. God says, you will feel my anger when I turn it loose on you like a blazing fire. Read on for clarification, and I will hand you over to brutal men, experts at destruction. So this point, every book of the Bible, it's made. And it comes out very clearly here in the book of Ezekiel. Another point we've talked about, that sin itself does the punishing. The wages of sin is death. Sin pays the wage. Uh, That point, again, is made so clear in Ezekiel, just like it is in Jeremiah. Just one verse on this. Turn away from all the evil you are doing and don't let your sin destroy you. Sin destroys us. God is not the destroyer. Give up all the evil you've been doing and get yourselves new minds and hearts. Why do you Israelites want to die? And another point we brought up several times, which uh, which I won't emphasize much in this Bible study because we're going to go in a different direction. But what God wants when we enter the experience of knowing God as a friend, that having a new heart, a new mind, the law of love written on the heart, that's the natural result. And here in Ezekiel 36, and we could mention several other verses in Ezekiel to go along with this, but just one, and I will give you a new heart, I will put a new spirit in you. Just like David would say, I want a new heart. In a right spirit i will take out your stony stubborn heart and give you a tender responsive heart and i will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations and as many of your versions say that you obey my commandments and remember all law all commandments point to one commandment to love so ultimately god wants to replace our selfish stony heart with a heart that is outgoing other-centered unselfish loving to other people that's what all law points But anyway, let's pick up the story here in Ezekiel 1. This is how the book opens. On the fifth day of the fourth month of the 30th year, I, Ezekiel the priest, was living with the Jewish exiles by the Chebar River in Babylonia. It was the fifth year since King Jehoiachin had been taken into exile. And so we know this was 593 BC. So we come back to our chart here of uh, the kings of Judah, starting with Manasseh, going all the way down. And I said last time there were three invasions of Jerusalem. Daniel was taken out in the first invasion into exile. Ezekiel came out here in the second invasion in in 597. So his first vision was four years uh, after being taken out into exile. And then, of course, Jeremiah, who never was taken back to Babylonia, Babylonia, but uh, went off to Egypt. Okay, And the first 33 chapters of Ezekiel occur between chapter 1, which is 593 B.C., and 586, so in a relatively short period of time. And and we know this because Ezekiel would keep saying, during this year, I had this vision. During this year, I had this vision, so we can can date and, and time these. But anyway, he had this incredible vision that most of you are familiar with and this is the downside to doing a Bible study for a big group, especially when we're trying to get through the whole Bible in two years. I'd like to discuss and see what do you guys think about what it was that Ezekiel saw. But try to build a picture as we read through this. What is he really looking at? It's incredibly complex. The sky opened and I saw a vision of God. There in Babylonia, beside the Chebar River, I heard the Lord speaking to me and I felt his power. I looked up and saw a windstorm coming from the north. Lightning was flashing from a huge cloud and the sky around it was glowing. Where the lightning was flashing, something shone like bronze. At the center of the storm, I saw what looked like a four living creatures in human form, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, and they had hoofs like those of a bull. They shone like polished bronze. In addition to their four faces and four wings, they each had four human hands, one under each wing. Are you getting lost? Uh, Two wings of each creature were spread out so that the creatures formed a square with their wing tips touching. When they moved, they moved as a group without turning their bodies. Each living creature had four different faces, a human face in front, a lion's face at the right, a bull's face at the left, and an eagle's face at the back. Two wings of each creature were raised so that they touched the tips of the wings of the creatures next to it. And their other two wings were folded against their bodies. Each creature faced all four directions And so the group could go wherever they wished without having to turn. Among the creatures, there was something that looked like a blazing torch, constantly moving. The fire would blaze up and shoot out flashes of lightning. The creatures themselves darted back and forth with the speed of lightning. As I was looking at the four creatures, I saw four wheels touching the ground. I mean, let's really try to draw this out. Uh, One beside each of them. All four wheels were alike. Each one shone like a precious stone and each had another wheel intersecting it at right angles so that the wheels could move in any of the four directions. And some versions say wheels within wheels. The rims of the wheels were covered with eyes. Whenever the creatures moved, the wheels moved with them. And if the creatures rose up from the earth, so did the wheels. The creatures went wherever they wished and the wheels did exactly what the creatures did because the creatures controlled them. So every time the creatures moved or stopped or rose in the air, the wheels did exactly the same. Above the heads of the creatures, there was something that looked like a dome made of dazzling crystal. There under the dome stood the creatures, each stretching out two wings toward the ones next to it and covering its body with the other two wings. I heard the noise of their wings made in flight. It sounded like the roar of the sea, like the noise of a huge army, like the voice of the almighty God. When they stopped flying, they folded their wings but there was still a sound coming from above the dome over their heads. Above the dome, there was something, you notice how many times he said, it's something kind of like, something that looked like a throne made of sapphire and sitting on the throne was a figure that looked like a human being. It was the first thing we can identify with, really. Uh, the figure seemed to be shining like bronze in the middle of a fire. It shone all over with a bright light that had in it all the colors of the rainbow. This was the dazzling light which shows the presence of the Lord. When I saw this, I fell face downward on the ground, and then I heard a voice. So the question is here, you know, and and unfortunately, the next chapter is not, Now, Ezekiel, let me explain to you what you just saw. And we go through in the symbolism and everything is outlined nicely. And, you know, we know uh, exactly what Ezekiel was referring to. So uh, what does all this mean? Well, it'd be interesting to get your thoughts. Uh, Google is not a great place to do theology, but uh, if you type in Ezekiel 1, you get some interesting ideas. But as it goes on, he said, "'Mortal man, stand up. I want to talk to you.' And while the voice was speaking, God's Spirit entered me and raised me to my feet, and I heard the voice continue.' Mortal man, I'm sending you to the people of Israel, and goes on with the message. Uh, this happens so many times. You remember Isaiah came into God's presence, and he was just overwhelmed, and a coal comes down and touches his lips. Now he's ready to give the message. Daniel, remember, just collapsed like a dead man. Uh, remember uh, John in the book of Revelation just collapsed at his feet, and uh, the word came, you know, do not be afraid. Okay, so Daniel or Ezekiel here, the spirit fills him. He's given courage here to give his message. The question is, what does all this mean? I mentioned uh, looking this up in Google and you will find lots of serious discussions that suggest um, probably the first UFO uh, encounter that was described. And so you'll find lots and lots of descriptions here of wheels within the wheels and uh, how all this might be describing Ezekiel had this uh, incredible encounter uh, with the UFO. So, what do we think happened? Well, I think it's interesting here, this, this one verse, just to look at a few other versions here. What he saw at the end, I realized I was seeing the brightness of the Lord's glory. Or this was the appearance of the likeness, sort of seemed like the glory of the Lord, and the sight was like the glory of God. And, um, you know, why would God present himself? Why not come, uh, you know, just like Jesus in human form and give Ezekiel a message? And, you um, I think, again, if we just look at the context of this time, I mean, if you are a follower of the true God in this time, and you see God's people are slaves in Babylon, you see Jerusalem surrounded by the army of Babylon, I mean, it would seem like it's pretty much over, right? Maybe you've got the wrong God. And so I think the the vision here, what's the point? It's like, well, Ezekiel, I know I don't seem in control right now. I know things don't look good, but we have this incredible vision of power and symmetry and kind of a sense that you know God really is in control. These eyes that are everywhere, these four creatures, wheels within the wheels, and above it all, um, there's God. So I think the, the message, um, maybe there's a deeper message and we should go through and you know, point out all the symbolism. And I think there may be something to that, but I think the overall message is one of encouragement. Hey, I'm God, I'm in control of this situation, even though it doesn't seem like it. Uh, Very similar to the book of Revelation. You know, that was another very, very, very depressing time because uh, people expected Jesus to come back in that generation. And now all the disciples are dead and John is the only one left and he's imprisoned. I remember off in the island of Patmos. And so it just kind of seemed like it's hopeless. And we get this great book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. What's the point of that book? Well, we read it through... And every single time we come to a head or a horn, we stop for three weeks and try to map it out and figure out what that refers to. Uh, But if you just read that book through as a whole, and remember, that's the way it was done in those days. The scroll arrived in church, you sat down, someone read through the whole scroll. They couldn't stop and say, wait, let's make a chart, let's uh, get the timeline in. They read the whole book all the way through. And the message overall of the book of Revelation was not just a message for us of dates and times, But the message to those people in that time is, hey, God is still in control. And if you read the whole book of Revelation, you find out that God wins. Okay, so I think uh, there's a big picture that sometimes we miss when we dissect things up uh, too much. So anyway, get this incredible vision. And uh, something I haven't brought up too much, but it comes up in every single book we've talked about recently. And that is about the prophets and how the prophets, the people who are supposed to lead the people into the truth uh, almost never do a very good job of it. It's quite amazing here. And this is how Ezekiel would describe it. The Lord spoke to me, mortal man, he said, denounce the prophets of Israel who make up their own prophecies. Tell them to listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. These foolish prophets are doomed. They provide their own inspiration and invent their own visions. People of Israel, your prophets are as useless as foxes living among the ruins of a city. Their visions are false and their predictions are lies. They claim that they are speaking my message, but I have not sent them. Yet they expect their words to come true. They really think that they are getting visions and inspiration from God. I tell them those visions you see are false and the predictions you make are lies. You say that they are my words, but I haven't spoken to you. I think this is a a critically important message for us. And the point I'm going to try to make overall is that our own understanding of truth, we need to settle for ourselves and not rely on anyone else um, for that. And just listen to a few other Bible writers here. Jeremiah, we read this last time, the priest did not ask, where is the Lord? My own priests did not know me. The one speaking for God did not know God. And Hosea, don't point your finger at someone else and try to pass the blame. Look, you priests, my complaint is with you. As a sentence for your crimes, you will stumble in broad daylight just as you might at night and so will your false prophets. My people are being destroyed because they don't know me. We've talked so many times about the significance to know God. It's all your fault, you priests, for you yourselves refuse to know me. Now I refuse to recognize you as my priests. Same thing in Micah, which we didn't read at the time. My people are deceived by prophets who promise peace to those who pay them but threatened war for those who don't. To these prophets, the Lord says, prophets, your day is almost over. The sun is going down on you. Because you mislead my people, you will have no more prophetic visions. You will not be able to predict a thing. The city's rulers govern for bribes. The priests interpret the law for pay. The prophets give their revelations for money, and they all claim that the Lord is with them. No harm will come to us. They say the Lord is with us. Okay, they're so delusional. They really believe they're getting that message from God. And finally, I love this one in Malachi. It is the duty of the priests to teach the true knowledge of God. That's the purpose of the priests. And as we read on, uh, we are commissioned in Revelation to actually be priests. What's the function of a priest? It is to reveal true knowledge of who God is, ultimately as revealed by Jesus Christ. People should go to them and learn my will because they are the messengers of the Lord Almighty. But now you priests have turned away from the right path. Your teaching has led many to do wrong. And of course, this all culminates in Jesus Christ who came to the most morally upright people in human history, his own people, reading the Bible, keeping the Sabbath, doing a whole bunch of right things externally. But when he came, you know, the humble people sat and loved to listen to Jesus, but the religious people are very skeptical uh, in the background. So the people who were so diligent in reading the Bible could look at God in the face, and say, you know what, you do this through the power of Satan. Okay, unbelievable. And how did things go through, you know, the rest of uh, the next uh, 1,600 years, through the Dark Ages? People who claim to speak for God, to represent God. Was God being truly represented? I mean, it seems like almost never in human history have the people of religious prominence uh, represented God. I'm not saying everyone, of course, but overall, So I love these words here in Isaiah 1, come now, let us reason together, Uh, read through different versions of this. It's really interesting, but let's let's think it through together. Let's discuss it together. And so our salvation, our relationship with God, everything is determined by our one-on-one interaction with God. We don't rely on anyone else uh, to tell us what to believe. And so... When people here finally had the idea, you know what, let's translate the Bible into a language that the common person can understand. And remember, there was great, great resistance. I mean, it's a horrible thing. Well, only the priests can understand the Bible. We can't give that to the people in their own language. And so we have people like uh, Tyndale who would say to a priest, if God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. Okay, so the priests. Uh, again, seem to be, according to Tyndale, relatively clueless about the truth. Let's give the people the Bible in their own language. Let's let them um, understand it. And so I'm bringing maybe in a few more of these, not by design or anything, but just, um, you know, as someone from our Adventist heritage here 100 years ago, they just nicely summarized the point that I'd like to make, which is this. There are today thousands of professors of religion who can give no other reason for points of faith which they hold other than that they were so instructed by their religious leaders. They pass by the Savior's teachings almost unnoticed and place implicit confidence in the words of the ministers. But are the ministers infallible? How can we trust our souls to their guidance unless we know from God's word that they are light bearers? Many ministers are believable, uh, but ultimately it's all up to you, yourself, individually, to come to truth. There's no excuse for anyone in taking the position that there is no more truth to be revealed. How about that? And notice that all of our expositions of scripture are without an error. Okay, we might have some things wrong. The fact that certain doctrines have been held as truth for many years by our people is not a proof that our ideas are infallible. Age will not make error into truth and truth can afford to be fair. No true doctrine will lose anything by close uh, investigation. Beautiful. And then the last one here every human being created in the image of God is endowed with a power akin to that of their creator. Isn't that incredible? What is that? Individuality, power to think and to do. The men in whom power, this power is developed are the men who bear responsibilities, who are leaders in enterprise and who influence character. It is the work of true education to develop this power, to train the youth to be thinkers and not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts." So. That's why, for me, the importance of daily Bible reading, prayer, because really when you open the Bible and you prayerfully read it, you are inviting God to be right there. And in that process, I mean, it's, it's hard at the beginning because things don't make sense maybe. But as you read on, you read on, you read on, you read it through again, you put more and more things together, uh, things fall into place and you're ultimately relying on God to lead you to the truth, not uh, someone else, okay? You might not come to absolute truth. but you are entering into that eternal life experience of knowing God as a friend. Well, there's a phrase that comes up 46 times in the book of Ezekiel, my holy name, far more than any other uh, book of the Bible. I'll just bring up uh, one or two passages of this, but what does it mean, my holy name? In Ezekiel 36, wherever they went, they brought disgrace on my holy name because people would say, these are the people of the Lord, but they had to leave this land that made me concerned for my holy name, since the Israelites brought disgrace on it everywhere they went. Now then, given the Israelites, give the Israelites the message that I, the sovereign Lord, have for them. What I am going to do is not for the sake of you Israelites, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have disgraced in every country where you have gone. And this is brought up again and again and again. And I think the point, point here, what is God's holy name? I mean, God is not... Uh, an egomaniac that needs to be praised to feel better about himself or anything like that. But what's happening here is God's holy name has been trashed by his own people. I mean, his own people meant to reflect his character, to evangelize the entire world, are in captivity. I mean, he calls out Abraham. He has this good friend and what happens? A few hundred years later, they're in bondage in Egypt, so it brings them out as slaves, tries to do all these things, intervenes in a thousand ways as we've tried to show, and now they're all back in slavery again. And so if you are anyone on planet Earth and you're asked about the Israelites during this time and about their God, what would you think about their God? A God of slaves is not worth much, is he? So. Um, the point here is God's reputation, his holy name has been thoroughly trashed by his people. That's why God's concerned about it because his reputation, his character is what wins people to him. In Ezekiel 5, the sovereign Lord said, look at Jerusalem. I put her at the center of the world with other countries all around her. But Jerusalem rebelled against my commands and showed that she was more wicked than the other nations, more disobedient than the countries around her. Jerusalem rejected my commands and refused to keep my laws. And God put Jerusalem at the center of the world for a reason. It was to be a witness, a great light that would shine throughout the entire world. And instead, it became a great uh, disgrace. But Ezekiel has a promise here. I will make sure that my people Israel know my holy name and I will not let my name be disgraced anymore. And this prophetically is looking forward to a passage that uh, we've read probably every other Bible study. John 17, eternal life is to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. How do we know the true God? It is through the revelation of the true, true God, Jesus Christ, God in human form, And Jesus would say, I have glorified you on earth by finishing the work, the mission that you gave me to do. What was it? I have revealed your name, your holy name, your character to those whom you took from the world to give me. So Jesus came ultimately to clear it all up. We want to know what God is like. We want to see his true character. Jesus came to reveal what God is like. And only then is God's holy name, his reputation, um, is only safe and secure in our minds when we have come to believe that God is just like Jesus. That's when, uh, that's when God's character is vindicated. And again, that's when we really want to come to God, only when we believe, hey, he's just like Jesus, kind, gentle, humble, forgiving. That's a God you want to get close to. Okay, a last uh, point here I'll just make on the book of Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel was min- one of many prophets that saw God and saw Satan. Remember Isaiah saw God, his very presence, and then he also has this vision about the king of Babylon. Um, Ezekiel, we just opened up, saw the glory of God. This whole thing was repeated in Ezekiel 9. He saw God again. And I think he also saw the enemy. And I just want to point out here in, in the last few minutes um, what I consider to be the importance of incorporating a bigger picture to our understanding of what's going on in the Bible. That we not just focus on here, planet Earth, my own personal salvation. And of course, that's very important. But about things that we don't see, uh, but yet that the Bible invites us to understand. So Ezekiel has this vision about the king of Tyre. Son of man, give the prince of Tyre this message from the sovereign Lord. In your great pride, you claim I am a God. I sit on a divine throne in the heart of the sea. The sea is always where the people are in the Bible. Son of man, weep for the king of Tyre. Give him this message from the sovereign Lord. Now, what does this sound like? you were the perfection of wisdom and beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Your clothing was adorned with every precious stone, red carnelian, chrysolite, moonstone, barrel, onyx, sapphire, turquoise, emerald. Okay, God doesn't seem to be against jewelry here, at least before the entrance of sin, because this being is adorned with all these jewels, all beautifully crafted for you and set in the finest gold. They were given to you on the day you were created. I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among the stones of fire." Again, the fire of God's presence, uh, it's not harmful, okay? And this being, before sin, walked in the very presence of God. You were blameless in all you did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. Your great wealth filled you with violence and you sinned. So I banished you from the mountain of God. I expelled you, O mighty guardian. From your place among the stones of fire, your heart was filled with pride because of all your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth and exposed you to the curious gaze of kings. Kind of interesting. You defiled your sanctuaries with your many sins and your dishonest trade. Uh, we could spend a long time on this verse, but uh, the temple, you defiled your temple or your sanctuary. Ultimately, so many times in the New Testament, you are the temple. You are the temple of God. Ultimately, the temple is, uh, is our mind. But he defiled his sanctuaries with his many sins and dishonest trade. So I brought fire from within you and it consumed you. Notice that a fire that is destructive uh, in the end comes from within. I let it burn you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who are watching. All who knew you are appalled at your fate. You have come to a terrible end and you are no more. So we mentioned uh, how many times in the Old Testament, like in Isaiah, where we initially have this prophecy which fit for that time with a boy that meant something to King, Ahi, King Ahaz, but then it prophetically looked forward to someone much greater, um, Jesus Christ. And um, in uh, Isaiah, same thing. And here I think we have this message about King of Tyre, but then it parallels to someone much greater. And this seems to, to fit, to my understanding, pretty well with, uh, with Satan. I won't read this through again, but you remember the passage in Isaiah 14 where this description, I will ascend, I will rise to great heights above the stars of God. This, this pride that is always referred to as, uh, as ultimately uh, the origin of Satan's problem. Remember, the, the principle of God's kingdom is other-centered, other-focused, outgoing love. So sin ultimately began when an intelligent being began to work in the opposite principles. Take. Take take, selfishness. And so we have these, these two principles at war, not a battle of tanks and lightning bolts and all of that, but uh, the the war of really two principles of operation, which Satan's kingdom is survival of the fittest. I will kill you so that I might live. And God's principle is other-centered love, God in human form saying, I will lay down my life so that you might live. Exactly uh, opposite principles here. And one might ask, Sure, Satan is in the Old Testament, but he's really quite veiled, isn't he? I mean, we see him at the tree. We see him in the book of Job, Zechariah, here Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel, uh, but not in that many places. And one explanation that uh, kind of appeals to me is, I mean, these people worshiped everything, right? Eager to worship everything. And so it almost seems like God kind of kept Satan under wraps a little bit. But notice, what's the first thing God did? In human form, he's baptized right away. He's off to the desert, has this encounter with Satan and it's like he didn't want to really expose and reveal Satan until he could defeat him. So Jesus came, exposed Satan, defeated him. And uh, now we put all these pieces together again about the great controversy. And so in Revelation, this is really where we find out about this war that broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon who fought back with his angels, but the dragon was defeated and he and his angels were not allowed to stay in heaven any longer. The huge dragon was thrown down. And I love how John just, let me clarify this in every way I possibly can. That ancient serpent, it takes us right back to the Garden of Eden, named the devil or Satan that deceived the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and all his angels with him. So we have this description of this problem, sin problem, that ultimately began in the very presence of God. And so that's why I just find it so remarkable here. God comes in human form, goes out to the desert and just imagine you're an angel here and you've been watching this whole thing and you've watched this fellow angel, Satan, do all of these crazy things and then all of a sudden one day God is gone or one member of the Trinity is gone and you find out he's living in a womb and you watch him being born. You watch him spend his first night in a manger and you watch him grow up as a humble carpenter and then... Uh, you watch him get baptized and he goes out to the desert and then you watch a fellow angel say, hey, get down on your knees and worship me. I mean, wouldn't that just, if there's any doubt, I mean, wouldn't that make it crystal clear? I can't believe I'm watching a fellow angel ask my creator to get down on his knees and worship him. And of course, Jesus said, uh, in essence, uh, beat it, Satan, get lost. And so uh, he defeated Satan there, but ultimately he defeated Satan at the cross. So I think this understanding of a great controversy perspective really adds a a very important depth to our understanding because ultimately, here's who the enemy is. We are not fighting against human beings, but against the wicked spiritual forces in the heavenly world, the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this dark age. And would that not be referring to Satan? So um, our own prayer life everything around us is in the context of this great controversy with forces um, here on either side. I think it really helps us to understand also all the evil in this world and bad things happening to good people, that there is this great controversy going on. So it helps us to understand, I think, freedom in a world of rebellion. For example, the tree. I mean, just the fact that that serpent is in the tree should invite us in Genesis 3 to think, okay, now something must have been going on. The Bible doesn't explain it, but why does God have this wonderful creation process and now we've got this serpent in a tree? Something happened before Genesis 1. and that's why we have to put the whole Bible together. But one point here about the tree could be, you know, did God just put the tree there as a test of obedience? I just want to see if they can obey. So I'm going to put a tree there. I think understanding the great controversy perspective maybe gives us uh, another way of looking at this. And that is, Satan apparently led one-third of the angels with him on his side. And God is trying to clear up, as we'll see, even the angels are learning from the experience of planet Earth. And so God's choice here when this great controversy began is eliminate Lucifer. But as we've said, that just would have created more problems, right? You just watch a fellow angel die God did it. Are you closer to God or are you further away from God because of what happened? And so God allowed this whole thing to play out. And I think that the tree was there really so that Adam and Eve had a choice. There's only one place that Satan could encounter Adam and Eve. I mean, we don't have stories of uh, Satan jumping out from behind bushes, you know, hey, Eve, come on over here. You know, they could only encounter Satan at the tree. So the tree ultimately was there for their protection. And so as soon as they go to the tree what's the first thing that happens? They encounter Satan. And so the lies, as we understand how Satan deceived Adam and Eve, it's so important, again, in a great controversy perspective and understanding what the issues are. So the snake was the most cunning animal that the Lord God had made. The snake asked the woman. This is just uh, incredibly subtle here, but listen to this. Did God really tell you not to eat fruit from any tree in the garden? Now, God just said, you can eat the fruit, from, the fruit from every single tree in the garden. Just don't go to this one. And so the implication here is, uh, boy, you know what? He's really not a God of freedom, is he? Uh, you can't eat, from, eat the fruit from any of the tree in this garden. And what's really satanic about this, and that's the choice of the right word there, is that God is a God of freedom, and we wouldn't be in this mess with all this stuff going on if God wasn't a God of freedom. If God just eliminated sinners right off the bat, then we wouldn't be in this mess. So. Satan paints God to be the way he is, ultimately. And as you know, they have this conversation and Satan says, that's not true, you won't die. God's a liar. And you know what? The real problem with sin, as Satan ultimately makes his case here, is ultimate problem with sin is really God. Because um, sin isn't that bad in and of itself. You won't die. God has to kill you if you're to die from sin. So the ultimate problem then with sin becomes God doesn't like sin and that God will execute sinners rather than sin being the intrinsic malignant thing that separates us from God and leads to death. So we get this whole thing. And of course, as you know, as soon as they'd eaten it, they were given understanding and realized that they were naked. And it's so interesting here that the Hebrew word for naked is the same Hebrew word for cunning. The serpent was the most cunning animal. So I don't know. Could it be that Adam and Eve realized something about themselves at that moment? So they sewed fig leaves together and covered themselves. And that evening they heard the Lord God walking in the garden. And wouldn't you love to know the story if they'd come running up to God and just said, boy, you know, we talked with this snake and we're scared. But no, they don't see God to be good anymore. They're hiding from him. They hid from him among the trees and the Lord called out, where are you? Of course, he knew where they were, right? But it was the most gentle way to come. Hey, where are you guys? And so they're scared to death of God. And for the most part, human history has been people sowing fig leaves and hiding in the bushes from God. Not until Jesus came did we realize what God was really like. So just a few verses here that uh, I think add to our depth of this whole great controversy perspective. The Son of God appeared for this very reason. And imagine we don't know the rest of the verse. He came for this very reason. What reason did he really come for? To destroy what the devil had done and what the devil has been successful in doing from the tree is to paint a satanic false picture of who god is jesus came completely shattered that image jesus himself became like them he shared their human nature he did this so that through his death he might destroy the devil who has the power over death okay, satan is the god little g of death god is the god of life and healing And the God of death here, Satan, was exposed, defeated at the cross, ultimately. So Jesus came as the light of the world because their minds, our minds, have been kept in the dark by the evil God of this world. So many verses on this. Jesus would say, just before he died, now the ruler of this world will be overthrown. Because really, Adam and Eve had just handed over the keys to planet Earth to Satan. So Jesus came to defeat Satan. And when he died, he stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. Okay, at the cross, Satan was exposed, defeated. The war is over, really. I mean, from a universal perspective, it's just here on planet Earth, uh, we haven't gotten the message yet. But the war is really over, it's won. So the Earth, in 1 Corinthians 4, is described as a spectacle, a theater for the whole world of angels. That's where the problem began. And in Ephesians 3, God, who is the creator of all things, kept his secret hidden through all the past ages in order that at the present time, by means of the church, the angelic rulers and powers in the heavenly world, okay, that's uh, angels, might learn of his wisdom in all its different forms. And then finally, even the good news here, what's the purpose of the good news? These are things which even the angels would like to understand, okay? So, the process of planet Earth, I believe, will ultimately secure the universe forever. There'll be no more questions about God and his character when this is all over. And in Colossians 1, through the Son, then, God decided to bring the whole universe back to himself. Again, that's not just you and I. God made peace through his son's blood on the cross. Again, there was war in heaven. After the cross, there's peace. And so brought back to himself all things both on earth and in heaven. At one time you were far away from God and were his enemies because of the evil things you did and thought, but now by means of the physical death of his son, God has made you his friends. And uh, I won't read this verse, but in John 8, I love this translation here, the Jewish New Testament, where the Pharisees tell Jesus, you are of your father, the devil. And Jesus says, well, let me tell you something. And he goes through, gives him some hard words and then would describe Satan this way. Indeed, he is the inventor of the lie singular, not plural. The lie is ultimately the singular lie about who our God is. Okay, the father of the lie about God. So when we read words like, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, Jesus Christ came to bring us the truth about who God is. And that is the truth that shatters the lies and sets us free. So let's pray. Father, thank you that um, once again in every book we're invited to take a bigger picture of things Help us to understand. Help each one of us individually to take the time, spend with you, settle it in our own minds for ourselves and come closer and closer to a God who's good, kind, just like Jesus. Amen.